Political Playlist Happy Hour needs no introduction. Unless, of course, you don't listen to Political Playlist Happy Hour, and then we should probably introduce it. We do the politics. We do the happy hour. The politics part is nonpartisan. I think the happy hour is also nonpartisan because we do all the drinks. And all of this is to discuss the goings-on of young congressional leaders under the age of 45. What's a congressional leader? I don't know. It's a new way to pronounce it, but let's find out. Here it is. Political Playlist Happy Hour. The political revolution of the millennium. Welcome to Political Playlist. <laughs> All right. Are we ready, guys? Happy Hour. Happy, Happy Hour. hour. <laughs> oh, God. What is a congressional leader? The con man. The con. George Santos is the a con. congressional leader. <laughs> Do you see he's running for re-election already? Ah, uh, good Lord. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Political Playlist Happy Hour. I'm Michael Kristoff. I'm Anna Muskie-Goldwyn. And the Barquette boy is not missing in action. Missing in action. Uh, on the day of all days that George Santos announces his run for re-election. Anthony's only, campaign manager. If only Anthony was here to talk about it. <laughs> that would actually be he, amazing. If he and Georgie Anthony... go way back. Anthony runs the social media for George Santos. They both they both love a half sip. <laughs> I don't actually know if Anthony loves a half sip, but it seems like maybe he would. I feel like he's got a lot of half zips. Yeah, yeah, for all the golf the golf games and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. for those uh, days in the chilly, air conditioned uh, financial office. Yeah, uh, Anna, what are you drinking today? I have a Modelo. Ooh, fun! Yeah, I have a glass of red wine from one of our wine clubs. Oh, wow. Two? Okay. That's cool. Uh, so I was, at a, uh, I was at a dinner drinks thing on Friday. And as always. I, I, as per the usual Friday. Uh, you know, and I like to keep a healthy social calendar. I'm aware. It's very impressive. <laughs> uh, I was told at this at said function that I should, quote, work in the White House. Which wow. was one of the like more feels, flattering no, compliments. But that... <laughs> yeah, there was some that debate feels as so to like, wait, was it a man or a woman that said this? Uh, it was a dude. It was a guy. Okay, I take it a little more seriously, not to be sexist, but I just feel girls are way better at like flinging around compliments, which is why okay. I was going to say if it was a girl. Well, would... all of the girls agreed. It would basically be the this. same level as like, oh my God, I love your dress. When it's like, they don't really love your dress. They just want something to say. <laughs> no, this this was a buddy who was like, it just occurred to me, you should work in the White House. But like, what does that even mean? What role, right? Like what? Well, that was, the, then this sparked the debate. So the girls thought that I should be in, uh, like, communications. Right, that's kind of what I would and maybe pick. And the guy thought that I should be somewhere in the chief of staff division. No. And mm -hmm. then two of the other people thought no. that I should be in the communications. I love you, but you're not tough enough for chief of staff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I Like, I, neither am I. But I just think <laughs> that, like, that's where, like, the dirty shit happens. And I the, feel like the... you're more of, like, <laughs> An outward I'm, facing. I'm a face guy. I'm a face guy. Yeah. You know, you have a good voice, <laughs> good hair. Like, yeah. I think communications is where it's at. All right. Okay. But I also don't, I don't really think you should work in the White House. I don't think that that is necessarily what you should want from your life. I think it would be very stressful. 
well, and you definitely couldn't be having your social life that you have now if you were. I I don't. You'd have to well, sacrifice. I, I don't think that um I could afford my rent if I worked in the White House. Definitely I don't think not. Very I well mean, you paid. also couldn't live here. You couldn't live in L.A. You would have to. They move. don't do a remote thing. I don't think they do remote White House. Huh. Interesting. Well, pretty I sure guess... that stuff's like pretty locked down on some like non Wi Fi servers. Well, speaking of security and uh, not conducting uh-huh. White House business uh-huh. via Zoom, segue, yes. Uh, let us segue to the latest goings on of the classified documents leak. By now, you've surely heard the FBI arrested uh, the 21 year old airman, a guy named Jack Teixeira. He was a, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. And he was arrested for leaking over 100 classified documents to essentially his gamer buddies uh, via an online uh, chat room. So I want to I want to kind of get into a, a couple of things here and forgive the long wind up. But I thought it'd be kind of good for us to walk through just it's a little bit of the like Intel 101 for listeners who who maybe don't know some of this stuff. So where did all of these documents come from? Why did he have access to these? What is the deal? The intelligence community, what we call the IC, is made up of 18 different intelligence agencies. Did you know that? Uh, no, 18 seems like a large number. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And like we all know there's like, OK, the CIA and then the NSA. Right. But like right. what are the other ones? You know, you don't need to name so, all of them. But yeah. So, Anna, let me just run you through the list. <laughs> All the acronyms. So, so it, it's it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, counted among this, right, is like the Treasury Department, which has mm. an intelligence division. The, you know, Energy Department, which obviously oversees our nukes. So they have an intelligence. You know, so all of these and then military intelligence. So all of these add up to uh, the 18 different agencies that are overseen by the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and that is currently a woman named Avril Haines. And this position, interestingly enough, was created post 9-11 in 2004. And so pre-9-11, there was a whole bunch of overlapping intelligence gathering that was not shared between departments because there was right, really and that no... that was like one of the things that came out of 9-11 was basically that there had not been intelligence sharing. Not that exactly. that was like the reason, but that it was, you know, perhaps more preventable than it, than it was if there had been more sharing. Exactly, exactly. So from that, then there there became this consolidation of intelligence from all of these different agencies that all go into the PDB, which is the Presidential Daily Briefing, right? And so this is a, a briefing that's done on a daily basis for the president. He gets it first thing in the morning, and it's kind of all the latest going on with military reports, intelligence reports, et cetera. So what it seems to be is that these documents that were leaked by this you know, allegedly by this airman, he's yet to sort of enter a plea. Um, But basically it was like these were in a briefing binder that was at some military meeting that was then taken from that meeting and photographed rather than being destroyed immediately following the meeting. And so, you you know, this seems like it was a, a military collection of uh, intelligence that then would have gone through the Joint Chiefs and into this, you know, PDB and and whatnot. 
um, that this airman somehow had access to or somehow removed it from a meeting that maybe he didn't have access to. So what I think is unique about this is that, you know, this does not appear to be he is he does not appear to be a foreign actor and he does not appear to be a whistleblower of any kind you know trying to sound the ideological whistle here it really seems like this is a very misguided young adult who was really just trying to show off to mm-hmm. buddies in a chat room and now is kind of looking at a lot of prison time. I was listening to some interview about it and whoever they were, I forget where it was, but they were saying like, if the fact that he just was trying to show off doesn't tell you about where we are in America right now, like nothing else. Well, like it's just such a comparing it to like the Pentagon papers or like Edward Snowden or these things. Right. Like there's nothing more definitive of like how ridiculous America is at this moment than a member of the military just trying to like show off the information that he has yeah. for basically no reason. Well, and and you know, I think that it speaks to this the the dangers of these sort of gamer chat room mm-hmm. platforms that, you know, th- there've actually coincidentally been a number of Bill Maher episodes that have sort of dealt with this in in just how like the young men of our society right now are so are are getting so damaged from a number of different outlets. Yeah. Um, one of which being dating apps. Mm-hmm. The the second being this sort of, you know, gamer uh platform world, which, you know, nothing against gaming and whatnot, but there is a real danger to this isolationist. Well, I was uh, gonna say the isolation, I think, is the thing. That's the common yeah. thread, right? That like none of these activities in themselves are inherently bad, but the being able to kind of find community in isolation is right. really, you know, it's dangerous, A, just because you don't actually know who the people are that you're communicating with. But also I think like we've seen, especially with young men, like breeds a sense of like stoking the fire that right. maybe wouldn't exist if they were together, even if the same people were together in person, you might not see the same sort of um, kind of not giving a shit about like what they're saying. Right. You know, the Internet feels like it's kind of this like safe space, which is sort of contrary. To, but <laughs> yeah, it sort of well, feel, it must feel like that. Right. So basically what was what was in these documents for folks who have not um you know, read up on on a lot of it, the contents of it, you know, what separates these from like the Snowden or Chelsea Manning or that level of, you know, WikiLeaks leaking, these didn't seem to reveal a whole lot about sources and methods, which is the big concern when you're talking about intelligence documents and leaks. They really just seem to release a lot of information as far as our assessment of things and how certain things in with respect to the war in Ukraine are going and a lot of um, information regarding our allies uh, and and enemies alike, it seemed like one of the larger uh, damaging elements to all this was that it had a lot of assessment of the Russian military plan, Mm -hmm. which 
effectively showed just how infiltrated we have we are within Russian military communications. So that's obviously a a very um, uh, bad thing to leak because then the Russians, of course, will now uh, backtrack and figure out where those leaks are are coming from. So um, I don't know that the this these leaks really told the world anything they didn't already know. I think they they just sort of are damaging on a a political and uh, perception front, uh, as well as obviously the fact that a 21-year-old, however troubled he may be, uh, was able to, in fact, leak 100 documents uh, of classified information. Yeah, well, and that also is on the heels, of course, of like, you know, Trump having all the classified materials, Biden having the classified materials, like, it's all kind of playing to the same narrative of right. why is there so much freaking classical, classical, classified? Classical, yes. Why is there so much classical music everywhere? Well, um, you know, Beethoven was a real Intel guy. <laughs> um, but why is there so much classified information just kind of out there and not seemingly kept track of and protected as it should be? Right. So I, this is sort of a good segue into my tweet here. Amazing. Um, and, and I want to sort of give it some context. So uh, our, our, our one and only Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is not on our platform, and mm-hmm. fortunately we, we don't have to cover her um, necessarily, although uh, she tends to, to pop up everywhere. She tends to make her way into things. So. <laughs> She had a long tweet about this. Um, I'll, I'll kind of just give you the, the broad strokes here. Um, she misnamed him by calling him Jake Teixeira in this tweet mm-hmm. and said that. Did she you know, spell Teixeira right? Because I feel like his last name is really hard to spell. You would. Amazingly, she did. <laughs> She's got the Jake part wrong. Uh, Jake Teixeira is a white male Christian and anti-war. That makes him an enemy of the Biden regime. Uh, ask yourself, who is the real enemy? A low-level National Guardsman or the administration waging war in Ukraine, a non-NATO nation against nuclear Russia without war powers. So this tweet uh, got an enormous amount of condemnation from from all uh, sides, uh, including Lindsey Graham, who called it one of the most irresponsible things you could say. And this Congress member had this to tweet about. As a member of the House Homeland Security Committee, I'm calling on Rep. Kevin McCarthy to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene immediately from our committee. Mm. Um, is it Spamberger? No, but good guess. Good guess. Um, is it a Democrat? Uh, it's a Democrat. Okay. Yep. Um, I'm going to give one more guess. Is okay. it um, – oh God, I don't know everyone's freaking committee assignments. Um, is it – Seth Moulton? You're 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 so doing close. good. You're you're giving good guesses here. Okay, you can uh tell. it is uh representative Robert Garcia of mm, California. That's quite different than what I was saying. You're giving me a lot of 42nd district. So we actually have Did a lot of Did not know he was on the intelligence committee, actually. Um it is the Homeland Security. Sorry, Homeland Security Committee. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense. He's in California, like immigration. Well, and he also does um, his, his district includes the port of Long Beach, 
of uh, course, or part okay. of it. Yeah. So, biggest port um, in the, isn't the or the port of Los Angeles is the biggest port? Port of Los Angeles. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, that would be, um, that's Long Beach, isn't it? No, that's it's in San Pedro. Oh. But there okay. is a port of Long Beach, which he represents, which is also very yeah. large. But yeah. anyway, we digress. Okay. Well, we actually have a number of members on our platform who are on this uh, committee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got our guy, August Fluger, mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Garbarino, who I don't think is on our platform anymore, sadly. No, I think he... Um, Tony Gonzalez is on this platform. Texas, yes. Um, uh, who else do we have? Uh, it's okay. Let's, uh, just talk about Robert, let's just talk about Robert Garcia. Yeah. Um, so basically... Um, you know, this is one of those things that goes back to what we've talked about with going back to the start of this Congress and just all of the concessions and whatnot that Kevin McCarthy had to make in order to really lock in that that yes vote to become speaker. And so. My question here, I guess, is sort of twofold, right? Obviously, somebody like a Marjorie Taylor Greene sitting on a committee like the Homeland Security Committee is just a joke and a half. Um, comments like this are, are, you know, plentiful when it comes to her. So my question to you is, A, do we think this is a little rhetorical because A, do we think that anything is going to happen? Is Robert Garcia going to get his wish here? Uh, and, and B, the bigger question is the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world continue to be seemingly bringing the Republican Party away from what is traditionally that hawkish military stance. We talked on this last episode a little bit. And, you know, I feel like where she's taking the Republican Party is so different than what the Republicans of Reagan and Bush, both Bushes really, but Bush 43 in particular, with regard to their military stance mm -hmm. on on the U.S. So where do you think this puts where do you think this puts Republicans? And where do you think this puts Democrats like Robert Garcia? I mean, well, first of all, I think that I just don't even think we should be talking about the fact that like Republicans are hawkish anymore. I feel like even the not Marjorie Taylor Greens are less inclined to be as hawkish as sort of like the Reagan Bush Republicans, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that even people who are like not supporters of Donald Trump, you know, not that they're saying we shouldn't be in Ukraine, but I do think that there is less of a rhetoric in general amongst Republicans towards wanting sort of foreign intervention. So that's the first thing I would say is I don't think this is just specific to Marjorie Taylor Greene. She just manages to to lay it out there in a way that is like so wholly ridiculous. Right. Um, no, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to take her off of her committee because he wants Republicans to get reelected next year, which is like literally the only reason that he won't do that. Right. Which leads me into a whole conversation about why our primary system is so broken, because I think <laughs> most Republicans don't want people like Marjorie Taylor Greene representing them, but they're not the ones who are voting in primaries. The like diehard far right Republicans are. Um, so that that's the reality. But I think that, you know, what 
in terms of what Robert Garcia is saying and like sort of Democrats role in this issue. Politically, I think that the more Democrats can just kind of be the voice of reason, which obviously in this case they can be because even someone like Lindsey Graham, who is more far right than he even used to be, is agreeing that this is crazy. I think that that's like politically a very good thing for Democrats, that they can just continue to be the voice of reason when these things that they're not just like crazy, they're actually potentially dangerous. You know that she's saying this and like rallying people around this guy who did something really bad. Um, So, you know, I think that for someone like Robert Garcia, freshman lawmaker, you know, Democrat who has potential, I think he's like already shown he has potential to kind of go far they just need to keep calling out the craziness and forcing Republicans to also call out that craziness. Um, and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. But in this case, I think obviously most Republicans realize that this is something to be called out. You know, for for anyone listening who isn't quite familiar with Robert Garcia, he's a really fascinating uh, young freshman congressman and you know, he was the former mayor of Long Beach. He is openly gay. He is very uh, much a successful COVID mayor. Mm-hmm. You know, he got a lot of praise with how he conducted COVID po- or, or rather balanced COVID policy with small businesses and, and just the keeping the city of Long Beach uh, up and running while also, you know, protecting uh, everyone's health and and finding that in a sort of balanced way. So I think what's very interesting about him and to see what his political future holds is that I feel like as many on the right would like to label him very progressive, which, um, you know, I think is is perhaps justified when it comes to some issues. I do think he's actually a rather um you know, much, much closer to a moderate Democrat than I think people want to label him as. I think at least I I would agree and disagree. I think in rhetoric, he's more moderate. I think in mm-hmm. policy, he's quite progressive. But I think that we need it's kind of how I would think of like a Ruben Gallego that like Ruben Gallego is a progressive Democrat. But the way that he messages and the way that he sort of talks about his positions seems more moderate like he's can kind of speak the language of independence maybe of more liberal republicans and i think that robert garcia would fall sort of in that same category where like if you look at his votes it's probably more left than you might think by listening to him talk interesting that's actually a great point i didn't uh i think you're i think you're totally right on that actually yeah, because the more I'm thinking about that, the more I'm like, yeah, maybe he is maybe more progressive than. And I think that's true of a lot of Democrats. I mean, I think it's true of a lot of Democrats. No. Um, interestingly, I think it's almost less. I think it's uh, I think it's true more of Democrats than Republicans in today's mm-hmm. world. I think that there are more Republicans who actually policy wise are a little bit more towards the center, but they talk in ways that are more extreme. And then I think there are some Democrats who perhaps vote a little bit more left, but their rhetoric is a bit more measured. Whoa, mind blown. <laughs> um, okay, Damn. well, shall we move on to my tweet? Let's do it. 
you're not going to get this one because oh, we great. have not <laughs> talked about this person yet at okay. all. Oh, probably wow. Don't even, you probably don't even know he exists. Oh, he. Okay. It's a okay. clue. Next week, I am holding a hearing of the Subcommittee on Workforce Protections to examine Biden's war on independent contractors and Julie Sue's role in destroying worker livelihoods. Hmm. Uh, well, it's got to be a Republican. Um, Max Mullen? Maybe Max Miller. Max Miller. Um, no. I'm just going to tell you because you're not, you're ah, not going to remember. Okay. You're not going to know who it is. So it's Representative Kevin Kiley, who you probably mm. didn't even know was a person. We haven't talked about him. We haven't talked this about him great. yet. He's a Republican. We got two, from we're doing two new freshmen. Yeah. This is good. Both from California, actually. Kevin oh, Kiley wow. is a Republican from California. What's what's his uh, area? What's his district? <laughs> Hold for applause. Hold for applause. Still holding. Still holding. <laughs> this was harder to look up than I thought. Um, okay. He is the this representative. Is great. None of this will be edited, by the way. He's the representative actually from outside Sacramento. So he basically represents, kind of interestingly, almost the entire border of California and Nevada. So Whoa. his district is dri it's drawn in a weird way where it basically is like the more populous area to the east of Sacramento, okay. going a little bit more north. But then he he represents basically all the way down the entire um, border of Nevada. Wow. To where Las Vegas is. So he represents like that, all that empty desert land as well, which is Damn. Really interesting. Okay. Um, so, yeah, sort of a, a interesting, um, an interesting district, to be honest. Yeah. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is so Kevin is the chair of the Workforce Protection Subcommittee, which, okay. you know, self-explanatory name. And he actually, fun fact, has a blog called Capital Quagmire, which is funny. <laughs> and Jesus. what he's okay. referencing here is that in three days, on April 20th, there's going to be a Senate hearing to confirm Biden's new pick to be Labor Secretary named Julie Sue. And it's very mm -hmm. controversial because Julie Sue was the head of the California Labor Enforcement Agency that enforced, I don't know if you remember this, we both live in California, there was a measure on the ballot in 2020 of whether we should be labeling, quote unquote, gig workers like Uber drivers, like Postmates people, blah, 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 as yep. employees of these big companies so that they could have oversight and legal protection and all of that, or if they should remain contract workers. Right. And the law that is now in place is something called the ABC rule, which is like a little bit complicated, so I won't get into it. But basically, it requires companies to essentially prove that these workers are contract workers and then they can stay contract workers. Um, so it's kind of like a, a little bit of both, I guess. Mm. But Julie Sue was a very big proponent of basically getting workplace protections for these gig workers, which obviously the businesses were very against the sort of workers themselves were kind of split 50 50. So the reason this matters now is because if she's going to be the labor secretary, the Republicans and a lot of American businesses are fearful that she's going to sort of bring that ideology into the administration and essentially say that, like, we need to create more rules that are going to 
um, push like freelance workers and contract workers into federally becoming employees. Um, so this has in increased opposition and uh, Kev so the House obviously does not vote on these appointments. That's the Senate's job. Mm -hmm. But Kevin in the subcommittee um, is holding a hearing to basically like unearth information about Julie Sue in hopes that it will influence how the Senate yeah. hearing goes. So this this subcommittee hearing in the House happens on the 19th, and then the actual hearing for her confirmation happens on the 20th. And, um, you know, Republicans and businesses have been waging a campaign against Sue, claiming that her record in California is very troubling for the Labor Department, um, which itself has sort of some pending decisions about how to deal with contract workers. So and I don't really have a question, but I think this is like really relevant to our generation and people you know, you've taken an Uber, haven't you? I sure have. I'm a frequent Uberer. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting with regard to a lot of um, a, a lot of elements of our day job business, which is the entertainment industry, which, mm -hmm. you know, is currently on the precipice of a large Writers Guild strike. Oh, and yes. Subsequently, I'm aware, you know. Other strikes. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting that one of the things that our industry battles is this very question of, you know, having so many independent contractors who thereby become unprotected when it comes to health insurance, when it comes right. to pensions, when it comes to, you know, a lot of, you know, worker protections that uh, and actual employee would otherwise well be i mean and they've tried to solve that through unionization but obviously right. not everyone is in the union not every production is unionized and even i mean i and many people i know have experienced even when you're in a union it's very hard sometimes to um enforce those restrictions that are yeah. supposedly kind of required by the union which is very different than if you're an employee at a company but like to use the entertainment industry as an example, it used to not be like that, right? Like it used to be you're an employee of the studio during the quote unquote studio right. era. Right. And that also was not so great because it didn't give people autonomy. If you're performing some sort of, um, you know, skilled task, if you're an actor or you're an editor or you're someone on set and you are beholden to a company in an industry that is volatile, then you actually aren't getting as much opportunity. So I think there's, you know, the, the entertainment industry has tried both ways. I think that obviously currently in California, entertainment workers pass the ABC test and continue to be contract workers. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it becomes more complicated when you're like an Uber driver and you're only driving for Uber. Right. And if that's your main source of income, aren't you an employee? So that's, you well, know, that's and, the thing that they're trying to fight here and show. Yeah. And I think the interesting debate that, you know, I really, frankly, I see both sides of this, yeah. which is that, OK, so somebody who drives for Uber full time, you know, they're they're saying this is my full time job. And Uber saying, well, we didn't hire you to be full time. We're giving you the flexibility to drive when you want. If you want to be full time, then you're going to have to hit certain you know, quotas and numbers and whatnot. And that defeats the purpose. Yet at the same time, if Uber wants to be successful, they need as many drivers as they can get at right. all times so that 
when I, you know, and after our happy also, hours, right? Exactly, when I have the munchies and, yep. and want to, mm -hmm. you know, order a little Postmates McDonald's. When or he's what been have told you. he should work at the White House and he's <laughs> had an extra glass of wine to celebrate. And I'm like, well, hello, check, please sign me. Um, up. You no, know, you're right. I mean, it... ultimately, all of this, and and this is where I struggle with even like the union stuff in our business. Like, ultimately. The cost, somebody's got to pay for this mm -hmm. and ultimately it goes to the consumer. So whether it's us subscribing to Netflix monthly, us buying a movie ticket, us ordering our celebratory McDonald's because we now work in the White House, like at some point that cost is going to get passed on to the consumer. And, you know, I think that at the end of the day, no consumer wants their cost to, to be raised. So it, it's a yeah, it's a but really I mean, also that's capitalism, right? Like, like even if you're an employee, that's the way it is. Like, if you're right. to stick with the movie business, if you're an executive at a studio, your your salary is technically still being paid. You know, when the studio's movie makes money, which means the people are paying for it, and then that's where the money is coming from. You know, that's how the studio makes money. That's how any company makes money. Is they either sell a product or a service or whatever that someone is paying for. I think what what I find well, interesting. Right. But if you if your costs start to go up, right. So vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say the writers win this strike and they mm -hmm. get a higher percentage of the back end. Well, guess what? Your Netflix subscription just went up to $19.99 a month versus $14.99 right. a month. Right. right. Because they well, have to cover that difference. They're not going to eat no company is going to let their profits dwindle. They're just going to charge you more money. Right. You know, and and when you this is the leverage that that these big companies have um, for better or worse that. Well, we exactly. To, you know, we and this want... is what but this and this is like kind of what I think someone like Kevin is arguing is like when you put the burden on the company to make up that cost, right. ultimately, you're not only hurting to your point, the consumer, but you're hurting the workers ability to have, you know, flexibility in, in their life and their work, whatever. Um, right. but I think that at the same time, it's like, okay, well, what, what Julie Sue wanted in California was for Uber to pay for the driver's health insurance or whatever. Right. Um, right. what and I think interestingly is enough, there was a whole New York times article about Uber drivers, specifically driving for Uber eats. Mm. And it was grim. I mean, yeah. it is. I mean, they really don't make very much money, especially no. when when COVID hit. No. Like it obviously like it like it just feel it's a very dark industry. It, it and yes. I think that maybe yes. what I would like to see from someone like Kevin is, you know, I don't know enough about this to know if I'm pro Julie Sue or not. Mm -hmm. But what I do feel and we talk about this all the time is that if he's going to have a hearing to talk about why Julie Sue should not be the labor secretary, and this is sort of the main issue, is her view of freelance workers and contract workers, what is the alternative view that actually will support people? Because I right. feel like the status quo is not working. Like, yes, some people can make a fine, steady income being an Uber driver, but it's not, you know, it's not like you can grow. It's not like there's really room for you to, like, create a life path doing that. Most people do it when they're in between jobs, when they're unemployed as a second job, if they're not making enough money. 
So I think that it's a constant thing where we just have to be demanding of our politicians and say, okay, I understand you're against, but what are you for? And let's lay out what those options are. And to take that one step further, you know, and this is not, this is going to sound partisan, but it, it's not. It's really just sort of empirically. Mm-hmm. The Affordable Care Act is very, very popular in this country, right? right? And regardless of what you think about it, regardless of what you, you know, feel are its issues, it is very popular with over 70% of Americans. And so we have seen that every time that Republicans try to erode at this, and, and there's yet another attempt. Mm-hmm going on with Biden just expanding it to include uh, DACA recipients, you know, they continue, Republicans continue to chase after this losing issue, which is trying to erode people's health care, even though it is wildly popular. And so what I would ask somebody like Kevin in this case is, okay, if these drivers and and subsequently the the proposed new labor secretary are fighting for broader protections and broader benefits such as healthcare for these these you know contract workers like Uber drivers why if you're not going to do that then how are you going to help these people get just the very basics of healthcare when you're also trying to erode and or repeal the affordable care act Right. You know, well, I, that's I think, the I mean, that's the joke, right? It's like Republicans always say repeal and replace right. but replace with what? And I think. That right. That's, exactly. Exactly. Um, and again, yeah. that's not to take a partisan side. That's just like, here's something that's really popular that a lot of Republicans keep saying they still yeah. want to take away. Well, and I think that like to this point, you know, I I actually think that. What Kevin is saying is a popular stance. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it is. And it's not just a pro-business thing. I remember when it was happening in California, there's a lot of drivers that didn't want to be, they were calling at the time kind of, you know, the the sort of like employment of these gig workers. They didn't want that. They didn't want to have the corporate overlord. You know, they wanted the flexibility. that flexibility. It was a very split, it was a very split sentiment. So, you know, I think that we'll see what happens. Obviously, a labor secretary is a very important job in the cabinet. And just what's interesting that people should know about this is that there's been um, a lot of pushback on Julie Sue ever since Biden nominated her. And it's interesting because there was speculation of whether or not she would withdraw because there was all this issue. And now it seems, of course, that she has not. And, um, you know, I I don't know what that says about kind of where the Biden administration is at. Perhaps it's just trying to remain looking strong before going into an election year. Right. But um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I go back and forth where I'm like, just put someone in there that everyone can. Well, right. Like, why even nominate these people who are controversial? Like, I don't understand that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, I assume. Look. She's probably very qualified. And this one Mm -hmm. thing that she did in California is certainly not the only thing that this woman has ever done. It's just what people are talking about. But it's yeah, it's like one of the mysteries of politics to me that when you're in a position to get people nominated to important roles, obviously, you don't want to compromise your values. um, But especially for someone like Biden, who I feel is not extreme in his views or the way that he kind of approaches things it's interesting that he nominated someone who has a record that is so um you know difficult for republicans to swallow Mm -hmm. 
So we'll see what happens. I mean, this yeah, is, that's interesting. You know, this is happening this week. If people are like really into the labor situation, you should, you should check in on uh, yeah. April 20th and see how the hearing goes. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to Postmates some Taco Bell. Oh, how about you? the gig economy. <laughs> Postmates Love Taco it. Bell, that's so sad. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm actually going to make a chicken salad. Not chicken salad. Sorry. A I don't, salad chicken, with chicken in it. Yes, because I happen to find chicken salad disgusting and unedible, but I'm just going to have yeah. like kale salad with sliced grilled chicken on it. So healthy. Love it. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> to go well, with my uh, Modelo. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's like a fresh, that's like a beach lunch. Exactly. That you're exactly. having for dinner. 